And let us pray. Keep, O Lord, your household, the church, in your steadfast faith and love, that through your grace we may proclaim your truth with boldness and minister your justice with compassion. For the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, it's fitting that uh, today, on Father's Day, we would talk about the fatherhood of God. So we're really going to talk about the sonship of Jesus, but that also would be the fatherhood of God. Um, So last week we talked about this false adulation or exaltation of John the Baptist and how he handled that. When they thought he was the Christ, instead of embracing that or running with it, he exalted Christ. He, He made sure people understood that one greater than him was coming, and, um, and he exalted Christ. And so today we're going to see the uh, confirmation of Jesus as God's Son. And we're going to look at both his divine sonship and his human sonship. And then the thing we want to understand, and I think the thing that this, this lesson will show us, is how does the sonship of Jesus enable us, enable you, to live in freedom? So to begin with, we're going to look at the divine sonship. And to start with, we're going to see that the heavens uh, opened. So in verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Well, now, Luke has to get right on with the story, so he doesn't fill in a lot of details. I recall when we were going through the book of Mark, it, it's rather pithy. It's short. There's very short, and he was he's getting right to the, the uh, heart of the matter. That's kind of what Luke is doing in this scene. So he's he's not really setting up the scene very well for us. We don't know where the baptism took place. We don't know how many people were there. We're missing all kinds of details. So we kind of need to see some uh, other accounts. And so we look to Matthew's gospel. And in Matthew 3, 13 through 15, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Well, so why would John have prevented Jesus from being baptized by him? But what would what would you do? What would you do if 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 you were in John's shoes? Not so long ago, I arrived late to a meeting. I arrived late to several meetings, but I arrived late to a particular meeting, and I was I paused and looking in the door to try to see if there was a seat because the the room was full, and an older lady came to me and wanted me to take her seat, and I I just that just wouldn't work in my head. I was being raised by my parents who you know who raised me and then living in this culture as I have and practicing some of these things for you know as long as I have the idea that I was going to go take an older lady's seat and make her stand while I sat uh, just didn't I, I just couldn't 
wrap my mind around that. Culturally, at least you know, back in the day, uh, that's not what we did. So, but but this is this is far different than something culturally conditioned with John. What he um, is thinking is more theologically informed. So it's not culturally conditioned, but it's theologically informed. And he's saying, no, not me. I should come to you to be baptized, not me baptize you. John was very concerned about why would, you, why would this even happen? Well, he knew that the Christ had no sin. And John had been preaching repentance of sin and baptizing for the repentance of sin. So why was Jesus even coming to him? Why would he come to John at all? Well, John would see this as the one whose sandals he's not worthy to untie is coming to him and expecting him to baptize. And so John had to be enlightened in order to understand what was going on. He knew that Jesus was the greater one. And so the greater one should have been baptizing the lesser one in John's mind. Well, Jesus, who is our righteousness, identified with the righteous acts and actions of his people. And so he didn't come to John to repent of sins or to be baptized for repentance because he had no sin. But he came to identify with the people and be one with them in order to fill all that the law required. So he submits himself, and, and this, I, I find this still very interesting. And of course, we know the whole story, and, and we know that the, the song that we sang in the, and the verses that we have read uh, echoed the song that we sang. We know that Jesus was born a child and yet a king. And so we, looking back, we're looking through the eyes and understanding and acknowledgement of his kingship. But things are just beginning with him. But John at least recognized the, his, his kingship and his superiority. And so it made sense to John to not follow through. But once he understood what was going on and, and that this was to fulfill all that the law required... Um, then he, he relented and he went ahead and baptized Jesus. Now, from the perspective of anyone in the crowd, it didn't look any different than anybody else that day to be baptized initially. John baptized Jesus in the Jordan, as we know from other accounts, and the uh, view from heaven, though, was quite different. The view from heaven was different indeed. As he came up out of the water, and some and some would translate this as he came up out of the banks of the Jordan. So it was, we're we're familiar with the uh, the movies and 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 pictures of as he's just being right up out of the water that this uh, next scene unfolds, and others would translate that as he came up out of the banks of the Jordan, and it was while he was praying that the heavens opened. And then in this scene, this remarkable scene, you have all three members of the Trinity present. And um, 
it, it, that's, I, that's an interesting passage to go to when if you run into somebody who understands um, this modalism where God is one because the Bible says God's one, but then they think that God is operating as Father sometimes, Son sometimes, and Holy Spirit sometimes. And so he's one with different modes. Um, and according to church history, that is a heresy, yet that heresy still exists today. Here in our town, we have uh, sizable places that teach that very thing. So if you're ever in around the water cooler and you're uh, having conversation about whether this Trinity, uh, the, God, the Godhead is in this Trinitarian nature, you might want to refer to the baptism of Jesus. Because you obviously have Jesus there, and you have now the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. You have the Father speaking. All three characters or members or persons of the Trinity are present in this scene. Um, and church, church history understands that these three persons of the Trinity share all the same substance. And that's the, that's the theologically accurate, according to church history... Uh, which is according to the Bible um, and lots of study to come up with that. Well, Jesus, I think it's interesting here to see that Jesus began his ministry by praying. And maybe we take this for granted. Well, of course he did. What else would he do? Well, (laughs) I think there's a lesson for us here. Um, As rushed and busy people, perhaps we are frequently too pragmatic. And then when we have resources available to us, uh, perhaps we lack a total dependence uh, on the Father's presence. But you think of that and you say, well, but Jesus certainly had resources available to him if he could, if he could do all the things that he could do, yet he humbled himself and he spent much time in prayer to make sure he had the presence of his Father and the understanding and acknowledgement of his father with him throughout all of his life. So we too should be people of prayer, seeking the presence of the Lord. According to John's gospel, um, John the Baptist saw all that was happening here. And so therefore, it seems like then all the crowds would have seen. So this doesn't appear to be something that was like secret to them or hidden from them. This seems to be something that was done in their presence. This remarkable sight as the, as the heavens were opened. Isaiah 64, 1 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. And in this scene, the Lord did just that. So the heavens were opened, and then the Spirit descends. Verse 22, or the first part of it, says... And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So it's while they were, while they were looking up at the heavens as the heavens were being separated and opened up. Um, and sometimes you see that as in an illustration of great big hands pulling back the clouds. I I have no idea what this might have looked like, but it's, that's helpful imagery of for me to recognize there's something going on. There's something happening that catches the people's attention and that they could see that the heavens were opened and this, this spirit descending. This is the first time in all of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is described as descending in 
bodily form. Um, so the only time I think that we can say that, it's, the, it's certainly the first time. And John the Baptist in John's Gospel says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And this, you know, was it a dove? I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily what it's saying. But evidently, very gently, as a dove would glide down, maybe the Holy Spirit's gliding down and then resting on him. And then I think it's interesting, this term simply of the dove or this uh, allusion to a dove. Because the dove is understood to be gentle, uh, whatever, kind of a kind bird. Um, as far as birds go, I think it's very kind and very gentle, which is a, Jesus' ministry would characteristically be a very gentle ministry in the way he pursued people, the way he confronted them even, the way he loved those who were broken, those who were hurting, those who were outcasts. He, he said, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He described himself this way. As we grow in the fruit of the Spirit, we too share in this gentleness. That is a trait of one who is a believer. He told his, his, his uh, disciples that, that they were to be innocent as doves. The Spirit came down and rested on Jesus, and now this gentleness from the Spirit comes to all who believe. So in thinking on that, how have you experienced your growth and gentleness since you've known the Lord? Can other people recognize your growth and gentleness? How compassionate are you? How caring are you? Do you find that growing? We see that the, the heavens were opened, the Spirit descends, and then the Father speaks. So the remaining part of verse 22 says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So these are not words of false adulation. These are not words to prop somebody up. These are words of affirmation. The people could see that the heavens were open. The people could see the dove descending. But this next manifestation, um, or next step in this manifestation, was audible. So they could see, then they could hear. And what, and what does it mean when they could hear the voice of God? And it's translated so that we actually uh, have words. Would all the people have understood the words or would it have sounded like thunder, which the Lord's voice is described as throughout the Bible? Well, we really don't know what everybody else did hear, but apparently uh, John the Baptist, uh, at least, would have heard these very words. And so... This is not something that was just uh, for the spiritual, as we say, or just for Jesus, but it was for others. So there's a public acknowledgement of this sonship of Jesus. And there's this public acknowledgement that the Lord is pleased with his son. He says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And this is uh, uh, where, where the crowds initially thought, would they have recognized who Jesus is? And that there's, no, there's nothing to really tell us that they would have recognized who Jesus is. 
And so Jesus is just one of them coming to be baptized among many who are being baptized. And then, once he's baptized, comes out of the water, he's praying, which is a, this public prayer he, he really did. And he prayed in public lots, um, which later you, you see things unfolding and, and people will misinterpret whether or not we should pray in public. Jesus prayed in public. People saw that. And as he was praying, the, the heavens open, the Spirit descends, and the Father speaks. And then there's this acknowledgement that he is the Son of God. Now Mary was told um, that her son would be called the Son of God. That was in uh, chapter 1, verse 35. As the divine Son of the living God, Jesus would be able to command stones to rise up and worship him. He also is the dispenser of the knowledge of God. In uh, chapter 10, verse 22, it says, No one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And so there's this recognition that, that Jesus is the Son of God, which is this a, a proclamation, a public proclamation of who He is. And prior to this, it would have been um, a handful of people who knew that Mary's son was to be the son of God. God the Father was well pleased, he says. But what was he pleased about? What had he done up to this point? Well, he was pleased with the humble incarnation of Jesus. And then his years of faithful, devotional living according to the will of God. He lived a very humble life as a carpenter in the nothing village of Nazareth. And Jesus lived three decades in extraordinary devotion, prayer, and communion with his heavenly Father as he grew in his understanding of who he was and what his mission and what his calling was and what he was to accomplish. All of these things pleased the Father. So we see the divine sonship, and then we're going to look at the human sonship. Verse 23 says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, and being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. Well, this genealogy is rather confusing when, when we compare genealogies. Um, the reason it's confusing is that the father of uh, Joseph has two different names. He has one name in one genealogy, has a different name in this genealogy. And then from the, from the father, it just gets worse as far as trying to match up the genealogy, say, from Matthew and the genealogy from Luke. This gets to be very confusing. But when we understand why and what Luke's emphasis is, um, it'll, it'll help us understand this point even more. It first it certainly appears to be this genealogy of Joseph, the, the, as was supposed of Joseph, meaning that Joseph is Jesus' father. But since it's so different than Matthew's, then one has to wonder, what, what, is, this, what is this story? Matthew's begins with Abraham and works itself backwards down to Jesus. And Luke begins with Jesus, and goes back all the way to Adam. 
But what Luke is actually giving us is the genealogy of Mary. But it, and, it, and it seems very odd as we read it where it says of Joseph, the son of Eli. Well, if Mary had no brothers, her father, Eli, would legally adopt Joseph to be his legal son and heir upon the marriage of Joseph and Mary. And so we have in Matthew's gospel the genealogy of Joseph, and here we have the genealogy of Mary. Luke is driving home the point that Jesus is the Son of God. He draw, and he's drawing a, well, a tree, an example for us to see that Jesus is this promised, obedient Son of God. As the, as the uh, genealogy unfolds down to 37 and 38, it says, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Malahili, uh, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So it's, there is no uh, genealogy in the Bible that ends with the Son of God. And this is, this is interesting that, that Luke is drawing this contrast and this picture for us to recognize the Son of God when we just heard from uh, God himself recognizing Jesus, who is his beloved son. What, what this picture is, is Jesus, this eternal son of God, this obedient son of God, is able, was able, to redeem Adam's failed sonship and our failed sonship. Adam is that son of God in the sense that he was born of God, made of God. But it's in that sense that all of God, all people are of God's, uh, God's making in that sense. Paul in Acts 17 said, In him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of our own poets have said, or your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Jesus becomes part of this failed or uh, flawed humanity with all of its brokenness, and he participates in it. And then he does this so that he can redeem this sonship. Paul also wrote that the first Adam became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So the redemptive powers of his uh, sonship are recognized in this life he brings. So there's a recognition of the divine sonship of Jesus. There's a recognition of the human side of his sonship. But what does this have to do with any practical application for our lives? Well, I would say it has lots to do with how you see yourself and how you live your life. For if you have been redeemed by God 
through the work of the Holy Spirit, secured by Jesus' death and resurrection, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. And, it, and, and, it's, and you're, you're just folded up into him so that when Jesus, when God the Father looks and sees us, when he sees you, he sees you robed in the righteousness of Christ. Thanks be to God. And as the Father then says to Jesus, you are my son, and with you I am well pleased. He also says this to you. Uh, there's a different context. I understand that. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I understand that. But this is not stretching anything, as we understand the whole of Scripture. And as, as the truth is, is that once you are a believer, you are in Christ. So when, as you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and the Holy Spirit descends upon you and brings you to life, then from this point forward, you are as accepted by God as a child of God as you will ever be. And we worry about that all the time. Those people at your water cooler at work worry about whether or not, they worry about their security and their position to the, to the Lord. Even those who don't know the Lord or don't claim to believe the Lord this is the reality, according to Romans 1. This is, this is all human reality. And this is why people strive for so many things, to fill their lives for meaning and purpose and acceptance. But, the, but, but this biblical reality is that we no longer have to strive to please God. The, 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 you know, many of us, have had issues with with parents. Many of us have had issues with other people and trying to live in a pleasing manner to those people. It was difficult, perhaps, for some of us, depending upon that relationship and who it was, to live according to these standards. Maybe they were known and maybe they were unknown or maybe they were ever-changing. But the goal frequently, is to live pleasing to this individual so that in this relationship, things go well. And I don't get zapped. When we were, when we were in Rwanda, we posted the video of the little boys chasing the goat, and they, and the, or goats, they were herding, I don't know, four or so goats, and they were twins. And the one coming up from behind had a great big long switch that's what grandpa would call it it was a it was a sapling and and he slapped that goat on the rear end to get it to go where he wanted it to go well he wasn't the only one who had such switches when we visited the the preschools the teachers also had that kind of a switch and it the switch is like taller than the teacher is and so how could they hurt so many people well pretty easy if they're going to get them in line Many of us have had relationships or experienced current relationships where we're worried about getting snapped with the switch. It's just, it's just life. And so we want to live in a way that's pleasing so that we don't get switched. And so, since that's our natural 
And that is the natural world in which we live. I've lived a long time saying, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. Well, that's only true to a certain degree, because if I'm really going to get along with people, I have to care to some degree how I, what they think of me so that I get along with them. And so I find, I find that, as I've grown older, I find that to just not be true. I really do care what people think of me. But we worry about this switching, and, we, and then we view God in that same way. And you know this is true, that if you, the people at your water cooler, the, the neighbors across the fence, the, the list goes on and on. The, the checkout person at the grocery store, the one behind you in line, this is the kind of thing that drives them to this kind of moralism. If I were to be good enough, God will be good to me. That's not what sonship or daughtership looks like for you as a child of the king. God's love will drive you to want to please him. The, the Bible says, that don't you know, that it's the kindness of God that leads one to repentance. But we want to turn that around and say, wow, my life is going to... Um, you know, bad places in handbaskets and stuff lately because, because of all these issues I'm just dealing with right now. And I know people who have, I know a particular person who hates a particular month of the year because there were people who died in that particular month of the year. And there's this understanding that I must be doing something wrong or these bad things would not happen to me. And this is just not true. This is why I believe if we understood rightly the sonship and daughtership of God, um, of who we are in Christ, it will free us to live. For if you recognize that you are, I mean, hear those words, you are my son, beloved son. That's That's not... The beloved part, that's not even just reserved for Jesus. That's for all who are in him. He's, you're beloved by God. And he loves you so much that he did send his son to die on the cross to take your sin and give you his righteousness. And it's out of that great love he had for you, undeserving on your part, that frees you to say, I am a child of the king. This becomes very good news, because if you understood that you're a child of the king, then what can man do to you? Who? Who can tear you down? It should free us from worrying about what others think of us, because we have been fully, and not, not conditionally, this is unconditionally, accepted by God. If we have been accepted by him to turn, our, to, to turn our hearts to him, to come and reside and live in us, then we are walking with him. We are children of the king. And so, as you walk this week, hear these words. Hear your fathers say, hear your father say here on Father's Day, you are my son, or you are my daughter, and with you I am well pleased. And now, go and live into your inheritance. In the name of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.